this lunchtime. Um, I was just saying to Talita that when I was doing my LLM at the other city, Cambridge, um, we always used to go on Friday seminars simply because the sandwiches were good. I hope you're not here for that. Um, so in my talk today, I decided to focus on the ICC because 2018 is the year that the ICC turns 20, the Rome Statute turns 20. Um, crimes that shock the conscience of humanity are as old as humanity itself. Um, however, global responses to mass atrocity are a relatively recent phenomenon. In the absence of an international court to deal with crimes committed by individuals, the investigation and prosecution of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, the so-called core international crimes, had traditionally been left to national courts. Historically, however, trials before national courts were the exception and not the rule. Therefore, the possibility of an international institution on the basis, on a, on a treaty basis such as the ICC, and one institution that could be seized of jurisdiction regarding such crimes took many, many years to materialize. The uh, Nuremberg trials kick-started the process um, and the efforts in earnest, um, but they also, I think, are important in terms of a paradigm shift from impunity to accountability through establishing that you can have individual criminal responsibility for core international crimes. This heralded the creation of a new field of law, that of international criminal law. However, what happened since um, Nuremberg was the, the Cold War, which for pretty much close to 50 years um, sort of stifled the efforts to create a permanent international criminal court. It was until 1989 where Trinidad and Tobago, um, facing an issue of illicit drug trafficking, um, led the UN General Assembly to um, seek the assistance of the ILC um, to basically address the question of establishing an international criminal court or other international criminal trial mechanism. That was also helped by the atrocities in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda um, and the creation of the ISTY and the ICTR in the early 90s that rekindled the desire to create a permanent international criminal court. Just to uh, cut the long story short, uh, there was a very intense negotiation um, before the six-week conference at Rome um, in the form of PREPCOMs, preparatory committees uh, that, that met um, before Rome. And the ICC statute, the Rome statute, was adopted on the 1st of Jul on, on 17th of July, 1998, hence the 20th anniversary later this year. The elation that was felt throughout the international law circles uh, with the coming into force of the ICC statute on July 1st, 2002, only four years after the adoption of the statute, could only be, uh, be matched by the surprise of many who thought it impossible that a statute such as this one um, would manage to attract the necessary 60 negotiations that were required to uh, enable it to come into force. With the ICC in operation, expectations as to what this court could or should do uh, grew, in my view, disproportionately to its ability to fulfill them. Before um, I turn to some of the court's achievements, I think it is important to revisit perhaps some of the aims <coughs> and objectives of the ICC uh, or a court like the ICC seeks to attain. <coughs> the field of international criminal justice is laden with grand aims, many of which are found in the statute's preamble. So for example, um, we, we say to reinforce the concept of accountability, to end impunity, to bring justice to victims and affected communities, to bring reconciliation 
to aid peace and justice and restore the rule of law. It would be unrealistic to expect that 20 years after the adoption of the Rome Statute, the ICC um, would, in the first 15 years or so of its operation, manage to tackle all of the above. The ICC is neither omnipresent nor omnipotent. Or, as a dear friend uh, and colleague of mine uh, says, the ICC is neither God nor your mother. So, <laughs> I think the court is restricted um, in its function by the very modalities of the constituent treaty, the Rome Statute, and the exigencies of its operation. So we have issues of jurisdiction, budget, organizational efficiency, and political will that all play a role as to how the court has performed. <coughs> Having said that, and given the context in um, which by design uh, the court operates, there are clearly some areas where the ICC uh, and the statute has fared rather well, and some others where it simply needs to do better. So today, um, 20 years after the adoption of the statute, the ICC is a fully-fledged institution um, with all the crimes, rules of procedure and evidence agreed to, and with some of them also already amended. Let me um, talk briefly about the definition of aggression, uh, which had been left out of the statute at Rome, and it was agreed upon during the first review conference in Kampala in 2010. And I'm pleased to say that following a very complex uh, negotiation in December 2017, in the course of um, the annual Assembly of States Parties meeting, it was agreed and decided that aggression will be activated uh, this July, July 2018, given that the requisite number of ratifications of the amendment had already been met. Now, as the um, court's uh, organs are in operation, um, we begin to see that certain reorganization is needed. So, for example, the now former registrar um, put forward a revision project aiming to make the ICC more efficient. Um, I'm not going to focus on the many firsts that this court has had, but um, what we see, we see also certain milestones in its jurisprudence. I cannot therefore resist but mention the <coughs> Lubanga case, the first case before the ICC, the award of victims' reparations, the ongoing Ongwen case, um, the first LRA commander to come before the court, himself a former child soldier, um, the Almadi case involving cultural property, the Bemba case, particularly on the sexual violence issues, uh, just to name a few. As the court develops its jurisprudence, it's, it, start, it starts to leave its mark on international criminal justice. Of course, I'm not going to pretend that this has all been plain sailing. The um, slow pace of justice, um, the um, many procedural setbacks, the collapse of cases, the quality of some of investigations, witness tampering, the overall cost, but also length, and I mean that also in terms of page numbers of decisions, have all come under fire. The establishment of the ICC by the Rome Statute marks the creation of a permanent international criminal justice system. A system with universal sentiment intended to make impunity the exception and ensure that individual criminal responsibility uh, exists for the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole. With the ICC firmly at its centre, the international criminal justice system relies on states, intergovernmental <coughs> and non-governmental organisations to play the role in ending impunity. So, for today, 
um, and to review some of the ICC's work, I've decided to focus on four major challenges, wider challenges, that perhaps challenge what was agreed at Rome and affect um, the court's successes and its future prospects. Because a treaty such as the Rome Statute cannot succeed on its own. The very existence of this global institution is contingent on the interaction with other actors and regimes, not least because the court does not have unfettered jurisdiction, uh, unlimited resources, or even its own police force. So it's all about synergies, and therefore it is essential to have those synergies for the system to function. And, and th th that interaction offers good insights um, also to other institutions that operate on a global scale. Let me come to my first challenge, therefore. The first challenge I would like to discuss is universality. In that, I will include reconciling the ICC with all regions of the world, with a special mention of Africa. Now, the ICC was created on a promise of universality. Um, unlike the ad hoc uh, tribunals of, Yugoslav, uh, of Yugoslavia and Rwanda, or other ad hoc tribunals that have limited geographical or temporal or jurisdictional focus, the success of the Rome Statute uh, is judged also on the number of ratifications or accessions that the statute receives. Few would have thought that 20 years after the adoption of the statute, um, the ICC would count at one point 124 state parties. Well, now 123. I'll come back to that. Particularly given that criminal jurisdiction is traditionally regarded as a reserved domain, a sign of national sovereignty. High membership is a desirable attribute of any institution purporting to be global, so achieving universality has been an issue very high on the ICC's agenda. Now, what is very interesting is that the objective of universality is not explicitly mentioned in the Rome Statute. However, the universal sentiment is evident. The statute's preamble acknowledges the universality of the human experience and states that international crimes within the jurisdiction of the court threaten the peace, security and well-being of the world. The drafters of the statute realize that the court <coughs> is not, nor can it be, uh, uh, the only actor. So early on, in 2006, the uh, Assembly of States parties adopted, adopted a plan of action aimed at achieving universality of the Rome Statute. The plan of action recognises that such universality um, is imperative to ending impunity for the most serious of international crimes, contributing to the prevention uh, and, um, and, uh, of such crimes and guaranteeing lasting respect for an enforcement of international justice. The values and principles enshrined within the Rome Statute are also intended to become universally recognized and respected. Now, every new ratification um, of the statute, including the most recent one, uh, once Palestine and El Salvador, constitutes a welcome progress towards its universality. However, it is a disturbing truth that an overwhelming majority of the world's population is excluded from the court's jurisdiction. Other than when, of course, this situation is referred to the court by the UN Security Council. However, as we have seen with the repeated failure of the Security Council to refer the situation in Syria to the court, the Security Council can often be deeply um, divided when dealing with issues of international criminal justice. In addition, five of the most populated states in the world, China, India, the United States of America and Indonesia, are not yet ICC state parties. 
Supporters of the ICC system should work together, in my view, towards uh, achieving this universal ratification of the Rome Statute. It is therefore important that government institutions working together with global civil society continue to call upon states that have not yet have done so to ratify the Rome Statute, including <coughs> the members of the UN Security Council. However, given the current political climate, allow me to be somewhat pessimistic uh, as to the chances of success in this regard. I somehow don't think that uh, Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin will prioritize ICC membership for their countries anytime soon. The ICC um, also faces challenges in its relationship with Africa um, and other existing members. Now, Africa is a, is a continent with the highest number of state parties uh, to the Rome Statute, um, a total of now 33. Moreover, four of the 16 serving judges at the ICC, as well as the president, the newly elected president of the court, um, come from African state parties. Not to mention that the position of the prosecutor is uh, occupied by Fatou Ben Souda from the Gambia, also an African. It is also notable that um, in the early days of the court, Africa was a staunch supporter of the ICC. Um, to date, we have four ICC state parties, Uganda, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Central African Republic and Mali, all African states. They have referred their situations in their own countries um, to the ICC. Indeed, all but uh, one of the nine situations currently before the court originate from the African continent. When the Georgian investigation was opened by, um, uh, by the prosecutor, many thought, finally, the ICC is out of Africa. With the <coughs> announcement of withdrawals, however, a cynic might say, Africa is finally out of the ICC. Now, I'm going to come back to the issues of withdrawals shortly. Um, let me first discuss the relationship between Africa and the court a bit more broadly. It is no secret that this relationship hasn't been straightforward. Some concern has been expressed by certain African states that the ICC's perceived almost exclusive focus on investigations and prosecutions in Africa to date suggests that the court is indeed biased or is unfairly targeting Africa. We often hear uh, that the ICC is the European court for Africa. That is um, a reference to Western states funding uh, most of the ICC's budget. I personally do not share the view that the ICC uh, is biased against Africa. Most of the African situations currently before the court have been self-referred. The fact that the Security Council referrals are also geographically located in Africa is an issue, but this is down to the balance of power before the Security Council, rather than an attempt uh, to target Africa per se. Ultimately, the ICC must continue to be seen to investigate and prosecute without distinction all persons that are accused of committing crimes under its jurisdiction, regardless of location and nationality. Now, the issue of withdrawals. As you may know, in 2016, late 2016, three countries, Burundi, South Africa, and the Gambia, announced their intention to leave the ICC. Although saddening, legally, <coughs> a state party, is entitled to withdraw from an international treaty, in accordance, of course, with the provisions of that treaty. The relevant procedure in the Rome Statute can be found in Article 127. I do not wish to speculate on the reasons behind the intention of these states to withdraw. However, it is evident that in some instances, um, some desire to protect their leaders um, might be evident. 
In the case of South Africa, it seems to be a matter of internal <coughs> politics, much to do with President al-Bashir, who you may recall was present in South Africa. South Africa, um, um, the, the courts and the High Court of South Africa um, issued a decision um, saying that they should arrest al-Bashir, but he left the country uh, from a military airport at the same time. So the High Court of South Africa then found that the decision um, um, on the matter, uh, that the notice of withdrawal from the ICC statute without parliamentary approval was unconstitutional and therefore invalid. As a result, uh, since March last year, South Africa decided to revoke with immediate effect the instrument of withdrawal from the uh, Rome Statute that had already been deposited with the UN Secretary General. This issue of, Africans, uh, of South Africa's uh, lack of cooperation with uh, the ICC was also uh, a case before the ICC itself. Um, and, and there we have a decision by the court which found that South Africa failed to comply with an obligation under the statute. However, the pretrial chamber decided against referring South Africa to the Assembly of States parties or the Security Council for non-compliance. Not very happy with this uh, language of the ICC's decision. Um, with regard to non the non-cooperation of, of South Africa, it sends a mixed message, in my view. Now, Gambia um, decided to withdraw its withdrawal. Uh, and that was uh, basically down to um, the election of a new president last February. To date, um, Burundi is the one country that has followed through with the withdrawal. Um, but um, it also seems that uh, Burundi's withdrawal has, it seems to have a, a spillover effect with the Philippines announcing their intended withdrawal as well. Now, both countries, Burundi and the Philippines, are under ICC scrutiny at the moment. So, as we've seen the overturning of the Gambia's position, We've also seen some action on behalf of the African Union. In last year's African Union Summit, the regional body decided to adopt an ICC withdrawal uh, strategy. <coughs> Despite the name, um, I, don't th I think the name is unfortunate, because if you look at the document, it doesn't actually call for a mass withdrawal from the ICC. It's more... Um, in term, it adopts a, a two-pronged approach uh, that asks for more research uh, on certain issues that are of concern uh, to, to the African Union members. And it also, um, they want to discuss collective withdrawals um, as, uh, as an option. So what are the issues that the African Union is concerned with? So uh, that includes primarily issues of head of state or government immunity whilst in office, um, and uh, a number of other issues, peace and justice, um, and all the rest that they, they, they have been concerned with for a long time. However, in the most recent um, session of the African Union, uh, a month or so ago, they decided to seek uh, an advisory opinion before the ICJ. I think it's a very interesting move on behalf of the African Union. I'm not sure it's a very easy move. They have to go through the General Assembly and then the General Assembly will need to seek the advisory opinion. It might take years. Um, but uh, they're, they're primarily concerned on the issue of immunities. Um, personally, I, I welcome this engagement rather than a blank rejection of uh, the ICC. Now, certainly the above developments uh, may challenge the ICC's global outlook. ICC membership in Africa is under attack. In my view, leaving the ICC is not really the answer to the African state's uh, problems, as there is currently no other body that could replace the court's functions. 
I've had the privilege of attending uh, pretty much every Assembly of State Parties meeting, either in The Hague or New York. So in the past few years, I sort of go with an expectation that the mood will be very anti-ICC uh, or at least somber. Um, what I have seen besides the anticipated attacks by certain states, read the Burundi statement for instance, um, there has been an effort uh, of other states to provide support to the ICC. And some of these other states come also from Africa. Um, and most recently, on the occasion of the election of the first African president of the ICC, a number of states wrote to the court to offer uh, their support. Now, with a view to the future, if the ICC were to undertake all activities in a transparent and accountable manner, it would contribute to the restoration of trust to the court and to the strengthening of its legitimacy across the world, including also in Africa. Now, the second challenge I would like to um, discuss is that, is that of independence, efficiency and effectiveness of the court. For a court to become truly universal, its integrity ought to be preserved. A court's independence is one, if not the defining feature um, of, a, of a justice system operating in accordance with the rule of law. The independence of the ICC and its organs is an issue uh, that was fought long and hard in the course of the negotiations of the Rome Statute. So it is no surprise that such independence permeates the statute from the preamble to the obligations imposed upon judges to ensure their independence. When it comes to the office of the prosecutor, not only is the OTP independent from outside actors, but it is also independent from the other organs of the court. At the same time, there are concessions. For instance, the power of the Security Council um, to um, refer situations involving non-state parties uh, under Article 13b of the statute, and its power to defer or suspend proceedings for up to a year under Article uh, 16 of the Rome Statute are two areas in which the independence of the court is qualified. While Article 13b of the Rome Statute open up the opens up the possibility that the court may exercise jurisdiction over non-state parties, as we have seen in the case of Sudan and Libya, the question of when that jurisdiction may be invoked is subject to the high politics of the UN Security Council decision-making. See, for example, Syria. Equally important is actual independence. Um, uh, besides actual independence, is also the, sorry, the perceived independence. In other words, the court and its organs must both be independent and must also be seen to be independent. The legitimacy of the ICC, the degree to, its to which the investigations and trials and its decisions are accepted by those subject to its jurisdiction, depends to a large extent upon the degree to which the court is perceived to be independent. Challenges to the court's legitimacy in recent years demonstrate the role that independence plays in the course of promoting the universality and integrity of the Rome Statute and cooperation with the court. Critics of the court frequently <coughs> raise the perception of bias to justify their action in respect to the court. The reason why a state party, international institution, non-governmental organization even, lends support to the ICC is so as to enable it to be effective in the fulfillment of its mandate. By pursuing the universality of the statute, by preserving the integrity and by encouraging cooperation with the court and implementing the principle of complementarity, these actors are contributing not only to the effectiveness and efficiency of the ICC specifically, but the effectiveness and efficiency 
of the Rome system of justice as a whole. Now, effectiveness can be measured um, in a number of possible ways. But in general terms, um, each seeks to measure the extent to which the Rome statute system fulfills its objectives. I would argue that effectiveness and efficiency are inextricably linked. The more efficient that the court is, the more effective it is. And the more credible it will be as a deterrent to the commission of core international crimes in the future. At a more practical level, the ICC is increasingly being asked to achieve more with less resources. Now, encouraging and supporting the court to improve its efficiency as well uh, is all well and good. However, we also need to ensure that the court's budget remains appropriate and does not lead to resource shortages and to give rise to inefficiencies caused by capacity shortfalls. To illustrate the point, let me tell you that the missile attacks against Syria um, some 10 days ago, that one night of missile attacks, cost 224 million US dollars. The ICC's budget for the entire of 2018 is 170, uh, 147 million euros. Just do the math. So I will leave now discussions about money to one side and move on to the third uh, challenge that I would like to discuss today. Is that of an effective um, enforcement system? Without that, the Rome Statute doesn't have any teeth. Cooperation, therefore, constitutes a key pillar for the proper functioning of the ICC and the international justice system established by the Rome Statute. As the ICC doesn't have um, an army, its own army, or a, a police force of its own, it has to rely um, for conducting investigations and prosecutions um, on states and other international organizations, and that a cooperation is key. Let us not forget that the Rome Statute does not also allow for trials in absentia. So securing the accused's presence and having the evidence required to convict is dependent upon such cooperation. As the late Judge Antonio Cassese had said with regard to the ICTY, something that rings true also with regard to the ICC, he said the tribunal uh, remains uh, very much like a giant without arms and legs. It needs artificial limbs to walk and work. And these artificial limbs are state authorities. If the cooperation of states is not forthcoming, the court cannot fulfill its functions. I once put this quote uh, as an exam question to my students in Nottingham. And one of the students wrote, the ICC is legless which completely made my day, but it wasn't exactly, so it means very drunk, right? So it wasn't exactly what Cassese had in mind. Uh, but coming back to the ICC, we need the states to combine their efforts to investigate, facilitate, arrest, and transfer the suspects to the court. So as I see it, there are actually three uh, different sides uh, to cooperation. First, it is vital to strengthen bilateral cooperation in improving the constructive dialogue between the court and the responsible national authorities. That also actually entails encouraging more states to sign agreements on the, on the agreement on privileges and immunities, uh, agreements on the relocation of witnesses, the protection of victims, and the enforcement of sentences for convicted persons. Now, victim participation um, is one of the key innovations of the Rome Statute. So according to the Rome Statute system of justice, victims must, without fear of apprehension, participate in trials at the ICC with their legal representatives to seek justice for the atrocities and suffering that they have endured. 
Facilitating their appearance, protection and reparations is therefore key to the court's success. Now, relocation agreements contribute towards ensuring that victims and witnesses are better protected in suitable locations, um, both geographically but also culturally, uh, uh, that guarantee their, their, their security and confidence. One of the most successful um, ICC relocations has been a case of um, a guy from the DRC who was given 50 US dollars in his new country to open a bike shop. And uh, a few years later, he's got five bike shops uh, and he's doing rather well. Now, of course, not all of these relocations have been successful um, or easy for that matter. The, there have been numerous examples where protection has gone wrong uh, and where relocations have simply failed because uh, removing a victim and witness and putting them in another country is not an easy task. Let me know, now turn to another key issue in strengthening the ICC regime. I would also like to, to emphasize the importance of states in enacting national implementing legislation uh, to universalize the Rome Statute. Now, states that have ratified the statute must be encouraged to integrate core international crimes uh, as well as the provisions allowing for effective and efficient cooperation um, within their national legislation. With regard to cooperation, this is actually an obligation under the statute. To date, we've had um, only 70 uh, seven states that are parties to the agreement of privileges and immunities. We only have 14 relocation agreements and um, for my latest count like almost half or slightly less than half um, of the uh, state parties uh, have implemented legislation with regard to cooperation. This issue of legislation is very close to my heart, as Talita uh, already mentioned. Many of you may have seen or used um, the databases, the National Implementing Legislation Database, which is part of the Legal Tools Project, um, but also most recently the Cooperation and Judicial Assistance Database, uh, which was created at the request of the Hague Working Group on Cooperation and as part of CMN's ICJ Toolkits Project, and they're both fully functional. So as a bit of shameless self-promotion, I'm going to argue um, why uh, these are quite useful. Well, it is actually, in my experience, people need help to draft this sort of legislation. So lawyers, prosecutors, academics and civil society organizations need to have access to this information um, in order to look how uh, cooperation obligations have been interpreted. I have long argued in my work uh, that international criminal justice is reliant upon building capacity at the national level. So I do hope that, um, that these, this work will be useful and will help with the, um, ensuring the universality of the court's enforcement system. Now, let me um, also mention here that when it comes to cooperation and perhaps going back to the types of, um, of cooperation, oops, I need to go back. Okay, uh, going back to the types of cooperation here, it is important to also rely on uh, non-state parties. So for example, um, what we saw with the Ongwen case, um, Ongwen, actually, uh, the LRA commander, um, went to, um, uh, to the um, authorities, um, first went to the, the United States of America, to, to the embassy, uh, who then handed him over to the authorities in the Central African Republic, who then took the decision to surrender him to the ICC for trial in The Hague. Now, it is very important for the ICC to build upon this uh, pre-existing, multifaceted cooperation with international civil society, including intergovernmental organizations such as the Commonwealth, 
uh, or human rights and humanitarian organizations, victims associations, um, and regional organizations. There is still a lot to be done um, when it comes to issues of cooperation. I expect that tackling non-cooperation is going to be a major issue. Um, and I would welcome some more coherent guidance from the ICC on this issue. We should not forget that the treaty basis of the ICC is a limitation when it comes to the cooperation um, with the court. So the statute does not really provide much ammunition when it comes to non-cooperation. An inevitable fault in the institutional design with the court, um, you might say. Now, I want to move to the last and final uh, challenge for today. And that is strengthening complementarity. As you know, the ICC can and should only be uh, a court of last resort in the fight against impunity. It does not replace the work of national courts. Each state must be able to adjudicate, adjudicate in all sovereignty crimes committed on its territory, including those under the jurisdiction of the ICC. Indeed, states, by ratifying the Rome Statute, have neither abandoned nor restricted their sovereignty. On the contrary, it is the primary responsibility of all ICC parties um, to investigate and prosecute the authors of the most serious crimes. So, the ICC statute is based on the principle of complementarity. Now, this gives priority um, uh, in terms of who acts first to national courts and limits the jurisdiction of the ICC to cases where there is a clear unwillingness or inability to <coughs> act. Now, of course, willingness uh, or unwillingness is essentially a matter of politics. However, the ability of a state to investigate and prosecute core international crimes depends largely on the institutional capacity and preparedness. It is therefore evident in my view that uh, the success of the ICC should not be assessed uh, through the volume of cases pending before it, but rather by the exponential growth of matters within its jurisdiction <coughs> in national courts. Addressing mass atrocity before national courts offers multiple advantages. Um, internalizing the responsibility to investigate and prosecute crimes under the national law slowly builds a domestic culture of justice and the rule of law. As we know, national uh, proceedings can have a great societal impact, especially for the victims of core international crimes. The experience that we've had from the ad hoc tribunals of the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, uh, the examples provided by the work of the ICC until now, as well as the proceedings of hybrid tribunals such as the Special Court for Sierra Leone um, and the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, have all demonstrated uh, the concrete limitations of justice process that is both geographically and temporarily remote from the societies that have experienced the, the, uh, uh, the, the atrocities and where the victims are present. National and even local trials are more visible and comprehensible by the affected populations, and they usually seem more, more legitimate to the local communities. We must also take into consideration that the ICC cannot deal with each and every situation. The court has finite resources and is usually detached from the territories on which the atrocities take place. This poses a number of problems, um, and that is an issue, for example, when you gather evidence or access evidence, when you approach victims and ensure the safety, as well as in order to achieve the visibility that is often needed to bring closure to the victims. It is not uncommon following mass atrocity that national jurisdictions lack the necessary um, operational capacity to address very complex 
uh, and numerous crimes committed within a specific context. So domestic capacity of states uh, dealing with the aftermath of mass atrocity is significantly reduced. There are a number of challenges that uh, are common in such contexts. I have already discussed the issue of lack of national legislation implementing um, the statute. Let me just add one more thing in that respect. The absence of specific legislation addressing core international crimes as such uh, might lead to their investigation and prosecution as ordinary crimes. While um, not necessarily problematic, ordinary crimes lack the stigma of the core international crimes and may not carry the same significance in the eyes of the victims, uh, perpetrators, as well as the wider international community. Also, some of the elements of the core international crimes are far more complex than those found in ordinary domestic law, for example. They therefore require legislation um, that is highly precise and adapted to the grave nature and complexity of international crimes. The situation is further exacerbated by the lack of necessary infrastructure, which is common in post-conflict uh, and transitional societies. The first time I went to the Congo, I met with the then Minister of Justice. And he said, Madame le Professeur, I don't know how many prisons we have in the country. I thought my French was letting me down, but he really meant number of prisons, not prisoners. So you can imagine that if the Minister of Justice doesn't know how many prisons, buildings, uh, they have in the country, when you start to talk about other areas of international criminal justice, things become very complicated. So you need prisons, courtrooms, police officers, detention centers, as well as properly trained and experienced personnel, such as judges, uh, police investigators, and so on and so forth. So building national capacity to deal with mass atrocity is therefore key to the success of the system put forward by the Rome Statute. This is where the statute itself, that building of national capacity, had not been included in the Rome Statute. So the concept of positive complementarity has been seen by many as the solution in the absence of a legal basis in the Rome Statute uh, to ensure comprehensive assistance and capacity building. Let me just say that the initial concept was simply um, found in 2006 um, at the, an OTP report uh, on prosecutorial strategy. Um, so what we had at the time was an active encouragement of states to conduct national proceedings and where appropriate to provide the necessary assistance to enable, enable them to do so. Until 2010, until the review conference, positive complementarity was perceived as a prosecutorial strategy. In the view of the OTP, positive complementarity encourages genuine uh, national proceedings where possible, relies on national and international networks, and participates in a system of international cooperation. Now, during the review conference in Kampala in 2010, I can even tell you that uh, the, the, it was overnight that we pretty much reinterpreted what we meant by positive complementarity then. A resolution was adopted at the end of the uh, conference that transformed what was the common understanding of positive complementarity until then. One of the key themes that came up at the time at the review conference was that the ICC is not a development agency. Therefore, anybody else, states, on a voluntary basis, but also NGOs, can help build that national capacity. So, as we understand positive complementarity today, it's, a, uh, it's the process of a technical and financial assistance 
provided the states in order to build their capacity to oversee investigations and prosecutions of core international crimes. I hope that I have highlighted some of the issues that have emerged so far. When it comes to positive complementarity, I feel that is one uh, of the issues where the statute didn't have anything on it and now it sort of has been stretched a bit uh, in the 20 uh, years of its operation to include something on it. Now, in my journey um, on of the court's life to date, I chose to focus on what I consider the four major challenges. They are by no means the only challenges that the ICC is facing. Universality, independence, efficiency and effectiveness, cooperation and complementarity have all left a hallmark on the court's record. It is beyond doubt that the first 20 years um, of the ICC, of the Rome Statute's existence, have been remarkable in the uh, world of international criminal justice system. As perhaps the enthusiasm of the early years subsides, one thing is clear. The ICC is entering the era of pragmatism. The first 15 years of the court's operation saw some fascinating developments, quite few achievements, and many, many challenges. It is time to reflect upon them, consider how to support, strengthen, and improve the ICC and the Rome system of justice as a whole. Now, international criminal justice and the ICC continue to dominate the headlines. On the 20th anniversary of the Rome Statute, the ICC may seem to some to be in crisis. However, um, I am sure that the ICC is here to stay. In any case, the right over the first 20 years uh, since the adoption of the Rome Statute has been thrilling, if a bit bumpy. I look forward to what the next 20 years have in store for the ICC, and I thank you for your attention. <laughs>